Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to our spring series, Pride Edition. We have a great two-part interview with Deirdre Pike, proud member of the queer community who speaks with Sammy about how we can make the experience of living with serious illness better for those in the LGBTQ community. Enjoy. Welcome, Deirdre Pike, my dear friend, who is a senior social planner and a justice and outreach program consultant uh, for the Diocese of Niagara and a columnist for the Hamilton Spectator. Good to be here. I'm so happy and looking forward to our conversation, Sammy. It's a real pleasure. Deirdre, to be honest with you, the reason why you're on the show is because when you listened to our podcast, you sent us an email. Do you remember that? I sure do. And what did you say? I said, how about a little queer content? Yes, you did. (laughs) And here you are. (laughs) I'm here to queer it up. Yes, you are. So um, anyway, welcome. I spent some time um, doing a little bit of research in terms of this topic. I feel like I've learned so much in a very short period of time, and I'm so grateful I did some reading um, because I was wondering, what are we going to talk about? How are we going to queer this up? I thought we might start with why the waiting room revolution? Something tells me you have some experience with palliative care and dying. Yeah. Uh, For 14 years, I worked in the Catholic Church in pastoral ministry. And so I had uh, many opportunities where people would, you know, be looking for a priest to come into their homes. And, uh, and I was the pastoral person that would be that one to, to go and have conversations with the family and to be at the hospital bed as people died and to lead, lead family in prayer in those final moments. And when I learned about the analogy of walking someone home and you think, you know, you can picture that in so many ways, you know, if you've had a walk with a a friend or a loved one down a, a pretty landscape and, and all the care and the feeling of that, that just was beautiful to me. And so being able to help a family understand that this is their opportunity to walk this very important person in their life home to whatever that means in their their minds and hearts was um was always very powerful and to me it's just the greatest privilege to be with someone at that such a graced time such a time of it is a gifted time to be with someone uh when they have realized now someone who is dying and realized that uh all the pretenses that we have worried about in our lives are gone and there is an another kind of openness that often comes and uh, helping people recognize that has been part of the ministry that I was involved in. Deirdre, I would let you walk me home. I would hold your hands so tight. I would hold your books. I always picture, you know, you know, like little stories of like, you know, isn't that the way you uh, show your first girlfriend or whatever that you love? Can I carry your books home? You know, like we're so kind when we want to, may I take that for you? Can I do, you know, anyway, it's just, I'll tell you one other thing is that the very first person I ever was with who died, like dying, you know, and Father Bob couldn't make it. And it was sort of a thing. And it was a, 
you know, it was up in Owen Sound. It's in a small part of Ontario. And, um, you know, so that family was really expecting somebody with a caller. And I show up, don't look that way at all. And anyway, that person died kind of not peacefully, that all kinds of people go out kicking and screaming. And Father bought when I told him about her, he said, you know, people often go out the way they lived. And, you know, she remember that she was always mad, this woman that I used to commune into. She was always like, where's the priest? And then, and she kind of died almost that same way. I remember saying the prayers and her body's shaking. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, is it the wrong prayer? Should I be doing something else? You know, but that was my very first time. And then I had other people who I had one woman, the first person I ever knew who had breast cancer. And she, she wanted me to like crawl behind her in bed, like to lay with her for, you know, and I mean, I was fine with that, but because she asked me to. So I figured that's what you do. Yeah. You have to get over yourself and be able to, to reach out and hold somebody's hand, even when it looks kind of, this isn't going to be pleasant, but this is what they need right now. I'm going to give them what they've asked for. So. Um, reminds me of the uh, death doula role. Have you heard of that role? The death doula role? I have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, when I stopped working in, in the church, I was trying to figure out what to do with my, and I looked into, I did bereavement ministry. I went to fan, uh, to Mohawk college for, um, I had a guy, uh, that ran a funeral home. Like I was thinking of being a funeral director. I, I kind of have a thing about death, you know, from a very young age, you know, I, I was reading a book, there's a line and I highlighted it and it said, uh, you know, it's all a lead up to this one line, but you know, it says, what I must do is die now. You know, I must die to myself now kind of thing. And then, you know, imagine that I was 17 years old, totally getting into that. Yes, I have to die now. And that'll make me freer the rest of my life. And I swear to God, I kind of did. And I still have that book. So is that like, you know, acknowledging your mortality allows you to live the best life? Yeah. This book, uh, Hugh Prather, he's, you know, it starts by saying um, about somebody, uh, you know, he's with his wife, you know, we've been together four years, like he's just a young guy, 30 or something. We've been together four years, and she might die uh, before morning. Who knows, but we've had four years together. And then you turn the page and it says, but another morning, another day to live and move or something like that. And then for whatever reason, I suck that up. I got it. And I always have just thought, yeah, like that is, that's the way to be. That really is perfect synergy with the waiting room revolution and the podcast. One of our take home messages is knowing your style. And one of the lines I always say is you die as you live. I'm curious now knowing this about you as a person what was your reaction to the podcast itself? I, first of all, the name, I mean, anything that's a revolution to me is, you know, just fabulous that I, uh, we need revolutions all over the place in so many ways. And, and a waiting room. I mean, everyone can picture that, you know, I think there's, it could have been the waiting room rebellion, you know, uh, because that's more or less what lots of people feel when they sit in a waiting room. Uh, like they want to rebel um, it because it needs such a revolution. And uh, so to be talking about this and the way that you describe it in terms of who you're talking to and uh, the kind of experience you want people to have when they're sitting in a waiting room or looking at uh, um, some chronic health issues or end of life potential issues, realities. Yeah, this is uh, this is such a necessary conversation and who better to lead it. Uh, so 
very pleased. That's what was my reaction. That's fantastic. I'm glad you liked it. In order to prepare for your interview, I was doing some research around the LGBTQ community and serious illness. And there were a few things that stuck out to me, most in regards to some of the topics we cover on the podcast. One of the most striking to me was that people have increased risk of mental health uh, issues, increased risk of eating disorders and um, body dysmorphia, increased risk of obesity and coronary artery disease, increased risk of some cancers, increased risk of intimate partner violence. They're less likely to get screened for common health, you know, issues like compared to other people. And so they're at greater risk of needing health care when it becomes whether you said intersectional or cumulative, when you add in things like income level and geography and ethnicity and immigration and culture and all these other layers, it is like a triple upon triple whammy of risk. And yet they feel so discriminated against and are less likely to seek medical attention. It's a perfect storm, to be honest. And the reason why I, I, um, you know, highlight this is because the podcast is really focused on people who have progressive life-limiting illness, illnesses that are going to change over time. A person will eventually decline from these illnesses and need end-of-life care. And when you put it all together... Uh, it's a little bit of a recipe for disaster. It's a disaster for the average person facing a progressive life-limiting illness. Um, And that's why we did the podcast. But when it comes to the LGBTQ community within communities, it is more of a crisis. That's the way I see it. I'm so glad that you said that. I mean, I don't like the description. It's so accurate that, you know, it's hard to hear, but it's so true. So I do appreciate that that description of all that compounds our our uh, health, and when you talk about it being a crisis, I remember once standing in uh, McMaster University Hospital and we were raising the rainbow flag for Pride Month. There, it was in the you could see a sign that pointed down the hallway to urgent care, and I said in my remarks, "We really should be holding this down at urgent care to emphasize." what kind of situation we are facing in healthcare as queer and trans people. And I would say, particularly uh, for trans people these days, um, how important it is to emphasize that. And I do hope that uh, there's an opportunity for a follow-up on that conversation, but it is urgent. It is a, a crisis. And, um, and that's why it's, again, so important to be, to be outing this conversation. When I think about a lot of the podcast, we're talking about people's natural crew. We just call them crew that is wrapped around them, that is so integral and important in their illness journey. Okay. And so I wanted to know what you thought about, you know, the discriminations that the LGBTQ community within communities, family of choice might experience when um, they're trying to walk the road with someone facing a serious illness? Well, you know, 
it's uh, the way that the, it works, you know, when you walk into a doctor's office often, of course, for the right reason, you speak to the patient and and not to the partner because I, I can understand for all kinds of reasons. So first of all, it's hard to even understand that you're not, that isn't an automatic discriminatory practice. Oh, they're avoiding me because I'm a lesbian or something, you know? So, but then in other cases, you start to recognize, wait a minute, that actually some of them do kind of talk to you uh, and include you and recognize you're part of the family. So, so that, um, you know, just getting over that initial shock about what it's like going in one office after another. Uh, I think it's important to, to ask, is this, you know, who is this that you've brought with you today, you know, and be interested in this. Um, in, you know, when Renee was in the hospital, I stayed overnight the first night after her surgery and the nurse was so kind to set up a bed for me and, um, uh, you know, a, a little cot there and, uh, make sure that I was able to be there for comfort and so on um, for Renee. But the next night in a change of shift, it was clear that I wasn't welcome and was not spoken to at all, in fact, and it was easier if I was out of the way and so on. Uh, and it seemed more than bedside manner, just that this person was in a hurry. It was a real, yeah, it was a real, you know, slap in the face and really that uh, I wasn't welcome there. And so I did go home that night and it felt terrible. Away for a little bit. So these are the kinds of experience. And now that was 15, my hope. It was over a decade ago. Thank goodness it was, uh, it's so far in our memory. But for my friends who are in this system right now, going through this, they already lost their families 35 years ago when they became a couple. They have had a lifetime of, you know, when, when they reached out, I said, Is, are there people in your family that I could coordinate? And there wasn't. That's not reality. It's all different friends from different places. So even coordinating that, you can understand how that would be different because some of these friends may not know each other. So, so we already had the burden of losing family, then choosing family, and then to enter a system that doesn't value our choice, and you know, our choice, and not just choice of who we bring with us, but you know, our actual um, realities of our identities and our full uh, humanness, you know, that's, uh, it's hard to overcome. And you're in a system where you just have to keep moving along, follow the treadmill, and you don't often have time to stop and, and ask people to honor this relationship that you value. You know, and, and then added to that, that over an illness journey, um, there will be multiple different teams involved at various times. And the idea of having to relive the discrimination over and over again with each new team is awful. It's awful. And I know we're maybe painting broad strokes, but, and you mentioned there were kind nurses and uh, and there were some that weren't kind. So we know that there are good good people out there, but generally speaking, there is still a lot of discrimination, even though your experience was over a decade ago. You know, even even my experience going as a, I identify as a woman and I go for a mammogram, but because gender expression is also confounding to people and our assumptions are so quick to be made, uh, that, you know, 
I'm often seen as male and, uh, and people will walk into the waiting room, you know, the second part of the mammogram stage where you're with that little robe on top and, and, uh, or if I'm there with my partner for support, uh, you know, and, and you get these looks and, you know, you want to tell people, you know, I sit up a little bit more so I can show them, no, no, I'm a woman. See, uh, you know, you find you have to justify like who you are and, that's, you know, these extra layers in an already anxious time is just, uh, you know, really increases our burden. And, uh, and for so many people, we just don't want to have that happening. So many institutions are also, you know, have religious affiliations and many of the support of people that um, you meet along the way of an illness journey come from um, chaplaincy or, again, religious institutions. And apparently that also can be tricky for people. Yeah, it certainly could be. It certainly could be, depending on, you know, now when you say chaplains, it, it just depends. You know, I mean, we come with people of different experiences, for sure, in uh, religious institutions. And obviously, uh, I mean, for myself, I, I'm i a Catholic and the Catholic Church isn't exactly known for its progressive policies around trans inclusion. Uh, but I'm fighting hard from the inside. But um yeah, these all of these sorts of assumptions that um, that could end up being uh, just another barrier, you know. Um, but I find that uh, chaplains in hospital systems they tend to be some of the more progressive thinkers, the people that I've come across. I think that that's a, you know a place where um, they're prepared to welcome the whole person. I think a chaplain comes to this differently, and I think that's maybe the diff you know, that's maybe the disadvantage of a doctor that's su such a specialist in such an area that it's hard to back up and say, okay, wait a minute. Like, it doesn't really matter to me that you're a lesbian, a breast is a breast. Well, actually, this is how it's going to be different for me than, you know, this other, you know, I, you know and, I, and, um, and so it is important uh, as expert as people get in their fields to be able to step back exactly what you're doing today and examine the whole person. You know, and the population's aging, right? So is the LGBTQ2 plus population as well. That we're eight. And so there are going to be more and more people coming down the pipeline who are, are going to be facing a progressive life-limiting illness and uh, will require a sensitivity and an openness, right? With the reluctance of many to self-identify, you know, in the face of healthcare. Um, it's really difficult to know the scope of some of these problems. Um, and so that is, um, you know, it makes it makes it difficult uh, for research, difficult to know what's best practice, because there's still so much hidden behind the doors, you know. And that's why we call so many things, you know, connected to the, the phrase, the closet, you know, whether someone's in the closet or out of the closet, uh, referring to whether or not you're open to this person or that organization about your sexual orientation or gender. And, uh, you know, long-term care hospital settings are often the second and third closets that we're going back into, you know, couples who have been together forever, all of us hugging each other goodbye in the washroom because they don't want to, you know, one partner's going home and they don't want to do that uh, at the bedside in case someone sees, you know, especially the era that so many of, for example, gay men, who already lived through um, HIV AIDS in the 80s and now are in long-term care homes and still feel the stigma of that. 
uh, is just is um, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking, really, when you think about it. And uh, and and you know that ties into what I said about you know there is a group, a cohort of LGBTQT um, community that is getting older. But they've lived through probably the worst time when, of, of coming out, right? When they were, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you would know better than I do, but probably very different experience than coming out today. And so when they have to reenter institutions or a healthcare system, having already lived through that, I, I think this cohort that is now going to need a palliative approach, need palliative care, need end-of-life care, possibly need long-term care, need hospices, these institutions, it's a big, big consideration. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big swell of people who have had a very terrible history. Mm-hmm. One of the first places that I did LGBTQ positive space training was a Catholic-based long-term care uh, home in a community near here, and um, and it was for the PSWs and the and uh, people working in that home who they had experienced a, a man who had who had worn a dress and heels, and the PSWs at that time were just in shock that this, you know, a man was wearing heels and they insisted that he was not allowed to wear them and they were making up rules for him. And and so we went in, a fellow that was studying social work and particularly around aging uh, LGBTQ people. And we did some, we had some fabulous conversations and looked at uh, a movie that was called If These Walls Could Talk. It was a movie in the 90s. And there was a there's a scene where, where it just the heartbreak of someone who whose partner dies in the hospital alone because she is left in the waiting room uh, seen to be a neighbor or something. You know, just having those conversations changed in two hours. The whole, um, you could feel it in the room the openness and yeah, like the scales were lifted from people's eyes. And I knew that the, that that man and other people to come for the next little while anyway, were going to have a different level of care, a different kind of care. And that is what really has to happen. A commitment to having these conversations. It, it can't be done by reading a book. It really does have to have a commitment to, uh, to training at every level, uh, including, um, the front line of the front line, for example, like in a family uh, doc's office, that kind of thing. Thanks for listening to the first part of my conversation with Deirdre. Join us next week when we talk about ways to push the healthcare system to be better, especially for the LGBTQ community. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, principal of Clarity Hub. Please go to our website to join in the conversation, waitingroomrevolution.com.